Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. So how do you go about telling your employees you're thinking of selling your company? When do you tell your employees you're thinking of selling? And what's the right way to share some of the proceeds of your sale with key employees? Those are all questions I talk about with Andrew Yang in this interview. Andrew was one of the guys behind Manhattan GMAT that sold recently to Kaplan, the big 800-pound gorilla in the education prep business. It's an interesting story. Andrew was able to get more than eight times EBITDA for the company on a clean exit without an earnout. Uh, I'll let Andrew tell you the rest of the story. Andrew, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, John. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell me a little bit about Manhattan GMAT. What was this company uh, doing? What were you guys up to? Uh, well, those who, people who are familiar with the GMAT probably uh, would imagine we were a test prep company that helped people uh, prepare for the test to get into business school. Uh, so most of our customers were uh, U.S. and Canada, um, but we, we had a following um, in Asia and Europe as well. And so when you go through this test prep, it was, a, was it a website people would go through and, and learn and take you know, dummy questionnaires, that kind of stuff? Um, well, we, we had digital offerings, we had online courses, but uh, the bulk of our revenue and business consisted of in-person classes and tutoring with about 100 of the best teachers in, in uh, the world, really. Um, so that, the, our sweet spot was that we would identify um, the best test prep and GMAT instructors in the world, pay them $100 an hour base, uh, and uh, they had to have a 99th percentile score on the GMAT, which was a 760 out of 800. Um, for reference, the average at Harvard Business School is a 720. So you found brilliant test takers who were phenomenal teachers, uh, and most of that was done in person. Um, so uh, the bulk of our business consisted of people showing up to um, classes in cities around the country. And, and you know, and I, I mean, I say country, most of our business um, in person was in the US, but we had classes in, in Europe and Canada. Neat. And, and, uh, and how, what got you into that? What was your journey to get to that business? Did you go to business school and was it something you frustrated um, you? So uh, I did not. I'd taken the GMAT on a lark, <laughs> which is sort of funny how big a deal that became. Um, but uh, I was introduced to uh, uh, Zeke Vanderhoek in 2001. And he, at that point, was a solo GMAT tutor. And we met in a Starbucks. So he'd been tutoring people on the side and then created a following in New York and started uh, building this company. So he asked me to work on some of the curriculum and um, pinch hit for him as an instructor. So I was the first non-Zeke instructor at this company. And calling it a company really is kind of aggressive because um, in 2001, it was Zeke and you know some books that he'd cobbled together. Uh, so I helped Zeke out from 2001 to 2005. And then in 2005, he approached me about becoming the CEO uh, at, uh, to take over the business for him. And at that point, the business was doing um, maybe around $2 million in revenue. Um, Zeke had built a, a pretty big following, um, hired a bunch of instructors in New York and Boston and in LA. Um, and so when I joined the company, um, there were about five full-time people uh, along with Zeke and me. Neat. And and then, so did you become a, a shareholder in the business or how did, how did that structure work? Um, well, there, there was a period during which uh, Zeke and I would make sure that we 
uh, worked well together. We had a lot of confidence because we'd worked together at least in some capacity for four or five years. And at this point, we're friends. Um, so there was like a year trial period. And then um, after that year, then I'd become a shareholder and, and partner in the business. Neat. And neat. And you, you went on to grow the business significantly. So what was it at in terms of revenue when you, when you, when you decided to sell it? Um, so by the time the company was acquired, we were doing uh, something like uh, 11 million in revenue. So I, I, the business uh, quintupled or so um, while I was running it. And then I was with the company um, post acquisition. And uh, when I left, the company was doing about 17 million in revenue. So uh, so it continued to grow uh, post acquisition. And of the 11 million that you were at when you were uh, when you were acquired, what proportion of that was sort of live events versus the digital stuff? Um, at that point, the majority of it was live uh, classes, instruction, tutoring. Uh, we had a lot of corporate clients as well. I personally taught the analyst classes at Goldman Sachs, McKinsey, J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, and uh, they had a very strong preference for it being live. Um, so uh, if I remember the breakdown approximately, it was like majority live um, instruction and tutoring. At that point, we had books that were for sale and are still for sale to, today in uh, Barnes & Noble and Amazon, and that was a significant uh, revenue driver. And then online classes and digital was, um, uh, was uh, the remainder, it was maybe 25 to 30% was digital at that point. Got it. And so what was the trigger that made you guys want to sell? Well, you know, I think it's a very personal decision when people decide to exit. And I was uh, committed 100% to Manhattan GMAT. Uh, I owe the business a ton. I owe Zeke a lot. Um, I grew up a lot um, as a CEO. Uh, you know, I mean, anyone who's listening to this, I mean, a lot of people are running their own businesses. Um, I think running your own business is an incredible uh, leadership and maturation uh, process and experience. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the decision to to um, get acquired was not something that happened quickly or lightly. Um, so, and well, so this might be fun for some people to hear. So, um, the one of the reasons why uh, we ended up getting acquired was that um, folks at Kaplan. So we were growing, and we became more of a thorn in in Kaplan's side. And then uh, we got a note from the general counsel at Kaplan saying, hey, there's this thing on one of your forums and it like, you know, reproduces a Kaplan question and we don't like that. So, you know, can you please take it down? Um, and so this guy- And Kaplan, for people who don't know, Kaplan is, it was a competitor, right? They, they do pre test prep stuff. Yeah, yeah. So Kaplan uh, is the dominant player in test prep in uh, certainly in, in North America and, and um, other parts of the world. Uh, it was- uh, division of the Washington Post Company, which was a publicly traded company um, that included media properties of various types. Uh, yeah, so so that so the general counsel of Kaplan Test Prep reaches out and says, "Hey, you know, your this question should be on your forum." Blah blah blah. Um, and so this gets forwarded to me from um, one one of uh, one of the team members, and then. I just wrote the general counsel back saying, like, sure, happy to remove it. Um, it it'll be down immediately. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll have um, other more positive things to talk about sometime in the future. Um, you know, I was just trying to be, like, cordial and friendly. Um, so the general counsel of Kaplan Test Prep saw that and then said, interesting. It seems like these guys are, like, kind of um, amiable, like, slash, you know, friendly. And, and so he then said to uh, the CEO of Calvin Test Prep, hey, 
Um, I don't know if you want to follow up with this, but I, I think that uh, the guys at, at Manhattan GMAT seem uh, kind of open. So we got a call from the CEO of Kaplan maybe you know two to four weeks later saying, hey, would you like to have lunch? Um, so I then had lunch with him, and uh, we were just talking about various things, and, and um, he, he wasn't doing any kind of hard sell or pitch, but what he did say was like, hey, you guys are building a great uh, franchise and business, and if you ever want to do something, um, uh, you know, let us know. Like, you know, like make sure that we're in the convo. Like, don't do anything without calling me first, kind of thing. Um, and, and he was a, a good guy, uh, and uh, you know, like he, he'd been in the business for you know, like 17 or 20 years. Um, and so uh, it, it was enjoyable talking to him. And so we just had an open dialogue from that point on. And so could you read through his code and decipher that he was saying, you know, if you want to sell, call me first? I mean, he pretty much said those words. So it wasn't like me, you know, whipping out the, you know, code breaker. (laughs) 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 Um, So, yeah, he was pretty much like, look, if you guys ever want to sell, sell, like, let us know first, um, was what he said. So then take us through the the period after that lunch to getting the check in your hand. What was the process like? So we uh, didn't have any interest in selling at, at the first lunch. So literally, like a year passed, or you know, eighteen months or something. Like like a lot of time passed, um, and uh, during that time, we get occasional overtures from people who wanted to invest, and uh, and so there there were two uh, stakeholders. It was uh, me and Zeke, the founder, and uh, you know, I was running the business at this point for like four years, and and Zeke had started a charter school for underprivileged kids in um, Morningside Heights. In, in Manhattan, um, which is incredible. Uh, you know, it's like I'm a huge supporter of his school. Um, people might find this interesting. So the, the reason why his school was an innovation and different is that it pays teachers $125,000 a year uh, to start um, with the premise that superior teaching leads to better results and that in order to get superior teaching, you need to pay more. Um, and it does this on the same budget as any other school by lifting out administrative costs and non-teacher uh, uh, staff. So Zeke, the principal, gets paid less than the teachers, again, with the premise being that the teachers are more important than the principal anyway. Um, so, so he started this school, and so he was getting further and further from the business. And so when he and I were talking about these people that wanted to invest in the business, um, you know, he, he was looking at that saying, like, well, you know, if we take in investors, then we'll have, um, you know, like uh, more people at the table, more stakeholders, more complexity. Um, and so he, he said... Um, you know, like I just as soon sell the business and take investment because like if you're going to take investment, then, um, you know, like it, it probably is going to end up leading to an eventual sale anyway. Um, and, and so then uh, I, uh, you know, he and I were talking about this and I was like, do you want me to see what the interest level is? Um, and he said, sure. So, so at that point, I called um, the CEO of, of uh, Kaplan and said, hey, you want to have lunch? And so we had lunch like, um, you know, a, a few weeks later. And then I was like, so let's say we were open to considering something. Like, what would that look like? Um, and then he said, well, you know, we need to do some due diligence and like, spend some time and try and put together an offer. Um, and then, uh, you know, Zeke and I said, like, well, let's see what they, they have in mind. And uh, simultaneously, there was another, there were a couple of financial investors that were also interested in, in investing in us. And so we were to, we said to them, hey, Let's say we were open to something like, you know, what would an offer look like? So uh, we thought it would be prudent to have more than one uh, 
potential purchaser. So you're not, you know, you're not just like negotiating in a vacuum. Um, so we then had uh, both parties then um, try and, and do due diligence on us and like, you know, get a sense of our books and our operation. And are you using an M&A professional at this point, Andrew, or are you running it all yourself? Um, so we, we hired a lawyer to walk us through that process. Um, and so, so that was the M&A professional, but there was no banker. There was no like shop it around. Um, you know, the, like in, in our industry, um, there was only one strategic buyer in our opinion, which was Kaplan. Um, the other major company in the space was struggling mightily, uh, Princeton Review. I'm not even sure they're in business anymore. Um, so, and it, it's possible we could sell to like a, another type of buyer. Um, but we, we felt comfortable that Kaplan was going to be the most um, highly interested and uh, aggressive in terms of um, valuation. And because we had a, a, you know, another financial offer, um, you know, we, we never hired a banker. So how did the, the three offers compare when you looked at them? Um, so the, uh, the strategic offer is typically higher than the financial offer. And was that the case in yours? Yes, it was. Um, you know, it was, which in some ways was disappointing because um, I was kind of uh, attracted to the idea of, uh, of like, you know, taking in some um, money and then trying to uh, expand. Um, but the, the strategic, in this case, Kaplan's offer was um, significantly higher. And so then, then it, it became, um, you know, like uh, it became clearer that if we were going to sell, then, you know, um, then Kaplan was the, the obvious choice. Can you give folks a, a sense of how much better? Was it 10% better, 20% better, 50% better, just for a frame of reference? Sure. It was, uh, hang on, let me, let me rewind. It was, uh, it was like 40 or 50% higher than the financial. Um, so, so it was non-competitive that way. And then the, the financial then said, like, you know, well, all these things can happen. And, you know, you'd retain a share. And then if, like, company grows to, like, be even bigger and you get, like, paid even more, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I, I liked the financial buyers. I'm actually still friends with those guys to this day. Um, so you know, uh, you know, I was I was a little disappointed that um, that their bid was uh, uh, too low to be competitive. And so the Kaplan offer on a multiple of earnings. Can you give us a sort of rough idea where what, where it was at on a multiple of earnings? Sure. So it, you know, it, it's uh, for our industry like the standard was somewhere in like the high single digits of. Um, EBITDA, um, so it'd be like you know, 8x would be I think something around the industry standard um, around that time, uh, and so like we ended up um, a bit higher than that, uh, and uh, you know felt comfortable that that was fair. Got it, got it. And and how did you come up with the industry standard? By the way, what was your source for that data? Um, we, uh, I mean, uh, I have a bunch of friends who are M and A types. I, I was actually so this is something that was, that's going to be very uncommon for people listening to this. Um, I was an I was a, a mergers and acquisitions attorney myself for um, like five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> for five minutes. Um, for for five months, but uh, five you know it, it it felt like longer, but uh, so. <laughs> um, so there were people I could talk to in in the uh, business, in the industry. Like you know, I, I'm here in New York. Like I have banker friends. I was like, hey, this kind of business. Like, what are you looking at? That sort of thing. Got it. So what was the? I mean, you've you've seen this from the other side, but what was the due diligence period like? So you accepted the Kaplan offer, better than eight times earnings. Sounded like a great offer. Uh, talk to us about the period between the LOI getting signed and the actual check clearing. 
So the due diligence was actually super painful, um, and this will probably be the case for anyone listening. Um, so th there was a good chance the deal was going to fall through. Um, we were competing with Kaplan, you know, on a, like on a daily basis, um, and so we try to keep the process confidential. Um, so out of all of the documents they needed and things, like I was essentially producing them all myself um, for a while. It was super painful. And we had a culture of openness and transparency. So the fact that I felt like I was uh, engaging in some form of like, you know, like um, mild, like subterfuge um, with my, my door closed pained me every day. Um, and, you know, getting the documentation in order was not a small task. I mean, it was like days and days and I'd be like asking people like, hey, you know, like, uh, like the, our purchase records from, you know, like two years ago, like what, what do those look like? And like, how would, how would one get a, one of those? And people would look at me like, um, I can like investigate that for you and be like, yeah. <laughs> so, so, um, so you have all sorts of weird conversations with people and like, they're looking at you like, what is going on? Um, and, and so you, you want to just be open because you feel ridiculous. Um, but, you know, like the, the, you, you wouldn't want to um, get people distracted and preoccupied, um, which would be very human and natural. Um, so you, instead, you just try and absorb as much of that as you can onto yourself. At least that's what we did. Uh, and and it, was, it was a painstaking process. Um, yeah, like it, it took weeks. How did you eventually tell the employees? Um, so we only told the employees after we knew it was done, like where, where they said like, okay, here's the deal and um, it's happening and we were confident that um, all was going to happen. And even then when we told them, we're like, look, there's a chance something falls through, but, um, but this is the way things are heading. And um, one reason why we were comfortable sharing this is that uh, Zeke and I um, put, put aside a bonus pool for employees um, we had a spreadsheet that we then uh, input things like seniority and contribution and like past um, uh, past compensation and things like that, and then um, had it like arrive at uh, sums for every uh, employee and instructor, uh, and so um, so that you know like so people had I'm sure very mixed feelings about uh, this news. But it was accompanied by uh, like a personal reward for each of them. And so I'm sure that, um, you know, made things go down a lot easier. And so, you know, this was a total surprise that there was some, some cash in it for them, that this was never promised to them? Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. So how did you reveal, you know, who got what? Was it a public spreadsheet or did everybody get a little envelope or what was that like? Um, everyone got an envelope. I met with people individually, or I called them and I said, "Hey, this is what's happening. Uh, thank you for making it possible. Uh, we wouldn't be here without you. Um, you know, we'd like to include you in uh, in the realization of value for the company." And so, you know, we've uh, you know input certain. Um, We've taken into account how long you've been here and like you know what what you've done everything and and we've arrived at um, this so this is the you know here's a check for this amount or um, you know checks on the way or it's going to be deposited in your account and give us um, a frame of reference Andrew I mean what what were those checks like were they hundreds of dollars thousands of dollars tens of thousands of dollars just a frame of reference would be great sure um, they ranged between 
you know, like hundreds of dollars, someone who hadn't been there very long and like, you know, was like uh, a very junior staffer um, to tens of thousands of dollars, um, like high tens of thousands. I think like at least a couple were in the six figures. So I'm thinking about it. Um, certainly, like I, I know one one person used it to like uh, as a down payment for their house, which I'm very happy about because you know like he's got a very beautiful family <laughs> so, so yeah what were the deal proceeds that what proportion of the deal pro- proceeds did you choose to share with your employees um we put oh man let, let me remember hang on hang on um i believe we put uh I'm sorry. I'm trying to remember what I actually realized. I think we we put approximately um, 10% uh, in the bonus pool um, for for employees, I believe. Uh, Hang on. Sorry, I'm struggling with this a little bit. Um, Somewhere between 10 and 20%. It might have been higher than 10. Oh, man. Sorry about this. It's been a little while. Um, I mean, you know, I I don't want to like overstate anything. So let's say 10% for argument's sake, and then I'll I'll try and remember. Got it. Got it. And then the the rest of the proceeds were were for you and Zeke, or did you have other investors at the table at that point? We did not have any other investors. So uh, it was was me and Zeke. Got it. Got it. So the emotions of telling your employees, I mean, was that an emotional experience for you? I mean, describe that experience if you could. Uh, yeah, it, it was very emotional. I mean, I, I felt like, um, I felt like I was the leader of this organization and group of people and, and people who are listening to this who run businesses, you know, you feel like you're kind of the head of an extended family. Um, and, and the extended family is generally like on the same page and mission you know, aligned and oriented. And, you know, you're like pulling for each other. Uh, and as the owner, you have a lot of discretion, um, and and so uh, and in our case, you know, we were selling to a competitor. So um, you know, these were the, the, like we identified ourselves as uh, the uh, the righteous, you know, uh, underdog army, like um, beating up the big corporate. And and so saying like, hey, we're selling to the big corporate, um, you know, is in some ways uh, tough news to deliver. Um, and, and I, I felt like, uh, and even though it's ridiculous, like I, I felt a little bit like I was, um, uh, like sort of, uh, going back uh, on something that, that we tacitly, uh, come together and understood. Um, and so it was very difficult for, for me personally, uh, though people didn't receive it like. I mean, people who'd been there and were in senior roles, like, were very much like, what does this mean for me kind of thing? And, like, you know, it was very heavy and they had to process it. Um, but uh, so most people did not receive it as, like, you know, like, like you know, there's more sort of uh, what does this mean kind of um, bewilderment more than anything else. There was no, like, anger or rancor or anything like that um, directed uh, to me um, at, at, during these conversations. Um, but uh, certainly I felt like if someone had been upset, um, I would have understood. Got it. Of the, you know, the, the offer a little bit better than eight times earnings or more than eight times earnings, uh, 
What portion of that was at risk in, in the form of an earnout? Uh, none. Um, it was a very unusual deal in that they, they uh, um, just said, look, we want to make this as clean as possible. Uh, yeah. And yet you stayed on for a period to, to help them realize some growth. How long did you stay on in the I, I, I agreed to stay for two years, and that was part of the deal. I'd signed like an employment agreement. Um, they, they allowed me to leave before the end of that agreement because I, I was leaving to start a nonprofit called Venture for America. And I, I told the CEO, hey, uh, I want to start this organization. I'm happy to work through the rest of my contract. And then he was very frank and said, look, man, um, you know, we, we uh, want you to be like happy and motivated. And if you're heading this other direction, then we just as soon um, work on a transition uh, sooner rather than later, um, which was a favor to me. So, you know, so I, I left a bit before the two years. What did, you know, what would you do differently if you had the wholesale? I mean, it sounds as you describe it, you know, a reasonably good experience. Uh, are there one or two things you might do differently if you had it to do over again? Um, in the scheme of things, it was like a really good process. And we, we were lucky that we didn't have to hire a banker. I think hiring bankers kind of, uh, you know, stinks. <laughs> um, uh, though, though most people who are listening to this who run businesses, you don't have natural buyers or like, you know, relationships like you, you might have to enlist someone to shop the company. Um, I'm glad we got to avoid that. So I'm very pleased about that. Um, uh, this is just an aside, but like, you know, I found out years after the fact that there was one person that was upset. I did not know that. Um, and so, you know, if I could do something differently, I would have tried to address it um, with that particular individual, um, you know, to a higher level. I mean, that, that's a, like, that's the only thing I can think of in terms of regrets. Uh, that process went really as well as someone could have hoped. What were they upset about? Um, you know, they, they felt like that they, they were uh, not... Um, not being treated as well as that that, that you know their uh, that they they'd merited and and he he was in like a very distinct situation where he was working on this like new initiative for the company um, and so you know it ended up not working out post acquisition and so he he felt very um, slighted after the fact and uh, you know that's something that I could have done done a better job with so. That helps. What are you doing now? It sounds like you've you've gone on to start this not for profit. Maybe just talk a little bit about that if you could. Oh my God! I think the people on this podcast are going to love the heck out of this. So, uh, so what hit me throughout my career in test prep and my time as an unhappy lawyer was that we had tons of smart kids becoming bankers, consultants, and lawyers in this professional services layer, and not enough actually building and starting businesses around the country. And uh, I thought that that was going to be a total train wreck disaster over time. <laughs> um, and, and so I became convinced that the problem is that we're not actually uh, uh, making entrepreneurship a visible path to young people. So the joke I tell, but it's totally true, if you want to go to law school, your parents think it's a great idea, it's easy to find, and the government will give you a $100,000 loan, no questions asked. If you want to start your own business, your parents will think it's a terrible idea, it's super hard to find and execute, and no one's going to give you $100,000. <laughs> um, so there's no mystery that we have uh, tens of thousands of surplus law school graduates every year and not enough entrepreneurs. Uh, so I started this organization, Venture for America, to recruit top college graduates who want to learn how to build businesses, and we pair them with entrepreneurs for two years in cities around the U.S. Uh, that could use the talent. 
Um, so we're in Baltimore, Detroit, St. Louis, Cleveland, uh, Denver, like other cities around the country. So if you're listening to this podcast and you want a, a lieutenant, like a, someone to grow with the business, uh, you can reach out to Venture for America and uh, we, we'd love to help make that happen because we need more of our young, talented people uh, coming to work for you and learning to build a business the way you learned um, rather than all becoming um, transaction processors and uh, you know, uh, PowerPoint docs and contract editors. Um, so I started this nonprofit after I left uh, Manhattan GMAT. Um, I put in 120K of my own to seed the organization and our budget was 200,000 that first year in 2011. And this year our budget is uh, pushing 5 million. So we've grown a lot. We had 1,500 applicants for 120 spots last year um, on the fellowship side. So the, the young people want this really bad. We just need to give it to them. And then uh, with their help, we can train the next generation of entrepreneurs and uh, rebuild the economy and what society. A, what a fantastic, fantastic mission. And I noticed that it's that both you and Zeke have – have chosen your new ventures uh, to be very purpose-driven. Uh, they're not; they don't sound like they're profit-driven. Um, talk to us about that. You know, there are a lot of entrepreneurs that would say, uh, you know, you you, has, you sell one business, you you know, go start another one. I mean, it's you you never finish. But for you, it seems like money has become less of a motivator. Maybe could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. You know, <laughs> and it, this actually goes back to Manhattan GMAT very much so, because. I felt committed to Manhattan GMAT, um, and I felt like if I left it, um, you know, I'd be leaving behind people that I worked with for years and that relied upon me in, in various ways. Um, so in a way, it would have been very hard to leave Manhattan GMAT to go work for another company. Um, I guess I could have started another company and, and maybe tried to, to hire some people, though I, there was a non-solicitation, so I couldn't even do that. But <laughs> um, at least for me, I felt like if I, I needed to do something really positive that I could be proud of as the next step, um, uh, in, in part because I felt so committed to that group of people that if I was going to leave, I wanted to do something that um, people felt really excited about. But, you, uh, but you, know, you, could, it, you could have started another business, right? Like you could have started another profitable, like a for-profit business that you would end up being just as proud of. So, but for some reason, yeah, yeah, I could you have, chose sure. not to, but maybe to help get inside your head a little bit on that. Sure. I mean, part of it is, is that you know, when I was at Manhattan GMAT, I saw so many smart, ambitious, energetic young people that were lost, um, that did not know why they were doing what they were doing. And I referenced the fact that I personally taught the analyst classes at these banks consulting firms. And I saw so many of them that were taking the GMAT be to go to business school just to figure it out. Um, and business school is an expensive way to figure it out. I mean, that's like 100K in loans that you'll then, you know, like turn to a very lucrative position to help pay off. And I remember that vividly because I had the same thing in law school. I got 100K in debt, you know, went, went and was an M&A lawyer for five minutes. Um, so because I was exposed to this over and over again, so many young people over a period of years, it just made me think the biggest problem I could address was channeling those young people to um, parts of the economy and society that would benefit. Uh, and I would have been happy for it to be a business. I just couldn't think of a way to, to make that thing a for-profit because you can't charge uh, startups and, and small businesses um, tens of thousands uh, to hire someone. Um, <laughs> you know, because, I mean, you know, when I was at Manhattan GMAT, if someone said, hey, I've got this, you know, like... Um, bright, aspiring 22-year-old who wants to work for you, 
and but you know you need to pay me twenty thousand dollars to pay for the cost of recruiting them, like et cetera, et cetera. I'd be like, how about I not pay you? <laughs> so uh, so I would have loved for it to be a business, and I'm optimistic that there's a business within Venture for America's activities that if we create enough value, we can um, start earning revenue. Um, like this year, our revenue is around you know two hundred fifty thousand, which uh, for a five million dollar organization is not like a huge amount, but um, is like a good start. Um, so I'm with you in the sense that I love businesses. I think businesses uh, make the world go around and create, you know, most of the opportunities. Um, and I'd love, I would love to be involved with business myself um, still. Uh, and I, I am, you know, in various ways. But for this particular problem, I just couldn't think of a way to solve it that wasn't a nonprofit. And I, I think making it a nonprofit was the right path because, you know, we, we've um, accomplished a lot the last uh, five years or so. It sounds like it. And tell us a little bit about smart people uh, should build things. What, what, where did that uh, that book come in in this journey? Sure. So, so you know, I was raising money for Venture for America, and I was making the case that we had like way too much talent going to, um, you know, like uh, big banks and and uh, other uh, other places. Um, and I was telling a lot of the same stories repeatedly. Uh, and then I was uh, featured in Fast Company as one of the most creative people in business a few years ago. And so then a, a literary agent reached out to me and said, hey, you should write a book. Um, and then I said, I don't have time to write a book. I'm so, sort of working on something. Um, but uh, as we made progress, like a year later, man, it's a theme. Maybe I can come back to things a year later. But a year later, um, I, I thought, you know, maybe I should explore the book because I find myself putting forward the same ideas so consistently that maybe a book would help uh, people to understand the importance of Venture for America. I saw it as like a good tool for the organization. Um, so it was published by HarperCollins last year. Um, I was on Morning Joe and, uh, and you know, Fox and a bunch of programs to promote it. But it, it's about how we have uh, too few entrepreneurs. Like we, we have uh, too many of some things, not enough entrepreneurs. And that it's completely predictable why this is. Uh, and that as a society, we can't rely upon anomalies to save us. Um, we have to build an effective system to cultivate our talent in ways that will actually lead to the economy uh, that we want to, to see. So that's what the book's about. The book's about the ideas behind Venture for America and the founding of the organization. Andrew Yang, thanks for joining us. No, thanks so much, John. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. -L -L Thanks for listening.